Hello and welcome to another episode of the Knowledge Podcast, brought to you by Keele University. My name's Tom, and in each episode, I'll be speaking to our academics about a whole host of topics. In this episode, I'm joined by Ken Rottenberg, who's talking about the psychology of trust. So please enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe. Hello, welcome to Keele University, and we're here again with another academic, this time from the School of Psychology. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'm Ken Rottenberg. I'm in the School of Psychology. I'm a professor. Uh, I investigate a variety of topics, one of which is trust. Brilliant. Um, so we're going to be talking to Ken about the psychology of trust um, in relation to a few different topics. But to start with, do you want to give us a, an overview of um, what your research has covered in the past? Okay. <clears throat> At least historically, I began almost 40 years ago on this topic. I'm a developmentalist, more or less by training, although I'm also a social psychologist. And at the very beginning, there was some reference to trust in the, in the children's literature. I just began by expanding on that. And since that point, I've, I have focused on that. I really had the first books on trust, academic books on trust published. Uh, and I now have two academic books. The next one, which we're talking about, which will be in print in March, uh, is called The Psychology of Trust. It's by Rutledge Press. And I've also uh, have agreed to write a, another book for them, which is a bit more academically inclined. Basically, the book really covers trust from all possible angles, all aspects of life. The general idea really is is that although we often focus on what we call crises of trust, which is a very popular topic, mm -hmm. the notion is that trust permeates almost all of our social relationships. It is really uh, is basically part of our dark matter, which basically helps us to bind the universe together. It's really many things. And if you start to scratch the surface, you realize how much depends on trust in terms of people's social interactions. So where did that start for you? What did you look at first in terms of trust? Um, well, the first article was a child development article. It was okay. actually in child development. It was really looking at children's whether they utilize promise-keeping um, versus promise-breaking as a basis of trust, and that was the first article. It expanded into a variety of focuses. One, I developed uh, basically a nice, uh, what I regard as a nice uh, framework, uh, which really tries to conceptualize, integrate whole diverse lines of work. Um, it's a BDT, uh, Basis, Domains, Targets uh, framework, and it has allowed me really to examine the trust and the diversity I have. So one of the area works that I, I guess I'm known for is it, how the links between trust, a lack of trust to be precise, and loneliness, and there are very strong links between these two, both concurrently and longitudinally. And I'm known for a lot of that work. And what happens is people who are, by and large, low in trusting others are inclined to become lonely, to experience okay. loneliness. And that's one of the predominant themes in, in some, of, uh, some of my work. Cool. So we'll, look, we'll sort of look at a few areas that you've, you've written about in the past. Um, I think one, one that we'll start with is, is how can we use social psychology to prevent war? Um, you wrote about this. So how, how can right. we use social psychology to prevent war? Well, one is identify what the, what the major problem people have historically. And the, the notion behind that particular blog, and the fact it's also in the Psychology Trust book, is that people develop a strong distrust in well, other groups, other nations, we call it outgroup distrust. There's some empirical evidence for this. And when you recognize that is, that, that essential component of these relationships, you know effectively what you need to redress in terms of trying to prevent war and promote peace. 
And so most of the article really describes some of the, uh, I some of you refer to in the book, tools we have uh, to try and uh, reduce this distrust. One is third-party mediation in terms of bringing mediators into the situation who are presumably trusted themselves, who could bring about a, a peaceful resolution, a reduction of the conflict. Then I also talk about a variety, there's also called something called grit. Um, it's another way of trying to reduce these tensions by having people uh, basically uh, reduce their arms, having it reciprocated. It's an arms reduction. Okay. And what happens is, is one party reduces them explicitly. Uh, that gives entry for the other party to reduce the arms. They, Because they articulate these to each other, they mm. build trusting relationships and eventually get an arms reduction. Uh, I think, if I'm correct on this, it was Osgood who, uh, who originally proposed this. Uh, I did not. It's called grit. Uh, but at any rate, I talk about that. I talk about there's a general set of what we call uh, basically socially structured cooperative interactions kind of technical term, really, if you will, um, what we try and do is that between people who are distrusting, sub situations where they have an opportunity to cooperate in a mutual way for mutual benefit and to structure these so that these opposing groups can basically collaborate and cooperate towards joint ends and mutual beneficial mm. ends. Uh, and there's some examples of these have uh, been used in different uh, countries at different times. Um, I even suggested not only that we look at that as something to prevent uh, conflict in regions that are, that are known for them, but also to preventively. I mean, really, we need to be reaching out and at least somewhat conflicting nations, not necessarily the brink of war, mm. which is almost too late by the yeah, point yeah. in time, but start to think about these cooperative ventures with, nation, with nations or groups which are conflicting with each other. Um, presumably, they, they're very effective, presumably, at reducing prejudice. And presumably they'll be effective in promoting really trust between these when they eventually depend on each other to collaborate and cooperate and to bring about a mutual benefit for these people, for the groups involved. So that's really, in a sense, a summary of some of what's there. So you looked at um, America and North Korea. Do you think it's too, do you think that's gone too far, or can we still kind of use the psychology well, of trust to, to help prevent a, a I still think we there? can. I think that mediation is an, is an opportunity that we should explore. Uh, and somebody asked me, I think, in one of the blogs, and they said, well, uh, there's only one military superpower and all of this. Well, yes, well, there's many part, many countries with military stakes in this venture. Mm. We have all, many, of course, most countries have military powers. Um, but I think mediation and that is certainly, is certainly a viable thing. I don't know if the, the U.S. in any respects would extend themselves to be cooperative with North Korea. That might be stretching it. But small ventures that might be a cooperative one would be something to consider. Um, you always, it's basically almost in a simplistic way like making friends, uh, you know, with, with joint outcomes that are beneficial to both. And I hate to say it, it is something that might be interesting to consider. Perhaps North Korea, maybe at least in other areas that we want to, rather than imposing them, uh, you know, extend hand a friendship and to decline co cooperate. Making sure that it's, it's identifiable outcomes, it's approved by authority, and it's done in a very, very precise way. I mean, it's not just, you know, we'd be friends, you know, give each other hugs. It's not essentially the purpose of this. But it's really ways of structuring these, these interactions and the cooperative outcome that hopefully will yield beneficial, beneficial consequences. Okay. So it's not too late. 
Well, I don't think it. I don't think it's too late. And the thing is, is that, in in, in all honesty, we may not have a choice. I mean, we have to use all mechanisms. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what people believe necessarily. I don't endorse war. I assure that people don't particularly want it as a final option in this course, and it could be a very serious consequence for us. So I think it really is worthwhile to consider any opportunities we have to, uh, to you know, to try and prevent it, to use any of our psychology research towards that, towards that goal. Um, I, I strongly support that endeavor, and I think people of, uh, around the world may, uh, may applaud such an adventure. And do you think it's difficult? I guess a lot of people don't trust Trump as a president. Um, so do you think that, that makes it even more difficult in situations like this? Um, you know, Trump's presidency is, is an interesting one in terms of trust, isn't it? Yes, and in fact, I've reviewed it. It was an issue raised during the election campaigns as well, when they, uh, one person happened to notice that his stated facts were a great discrepancy with actual facts. So there has been an issue regarding Trump in many respects in the course of, course of his election and even currently today. I, I think that does pose a bit of a problem. Um, the, 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 I, I, can't, I can't speak really on behalf of the United States. It's impossible for yeah, yeah, yeah. To really to do that. All, all we really do is, is that, look, we have some tools of social psychology. <clears throat> let's, let's try at least and, in, and use these to our ends to try and achieve outcomes that we want to achieve as a country and, and of course, internationally. That's simply, the, that's simply what I'm proposing to them. Um, they're not hiring me for doing, doing that yet, uh, though I certainly be ha happy to be a, co a consultant in any venture that they want wish to pursue. So is there sort of, um, is there common things where trust tends to break down? Is there common themes where trust yes. tends, to, tends to break apart? Um, yes, you, you've identified, you've identified yes, yes, well, we, we, the, the particular uh, BDT specifies what trust is composed of. I mean, it's a framework. So the basis basically of reliability, which is what actually Rodder, who, who I'll go back over that personally, uh, it's the idea of keeping a promise your word. Mm -hmm. That was what he had focused on. The other one really is what we call emotional trust, which is, applies particularly to uh, closer relationships. And it's whether people accept your disclosures uncritically, and also the extent to which you keep them confidential. And finally, honesty, which is really more, more you can probably intuitively understand mm -hmm. that, which is not only where people are honest, but whether they have benign or genuine intentions behind their actions. Uh, those are the three bases, but they are part of beliefs, they're part of what we call behavior and acting. You depend on others to do these things, or yourself, you engage in, which is trustworthiness, really in this context. So the framework really describes all these. And we know, for example, that trust can be violated because you can violate these. Mm. If you break your promise to, your, to whomever, <clears throat> break your word, or basically you reveal something secret you shouldn't have, um, or basically you've been dishonest or lied. Those are obviously clues and evidence, uh, situations where you do have violations of trust. And, and there's become evolving cyclical. So the theory suggests is, is not only do we actually have these, first of all, they can vary by the target. So we can have trust in the United States. Mm -hmm. We can have trust in Trump. We can have trust in the Congress, in Parliament, or Theresa May. We have trust at different levels, I mean, in terms of how specific or generalizable or how much we know them. These are the target dimensions. Right. So you could have trust. I mean, when you talk about trust, you can have trust in the United States to do the right thing. 
as opposed to just Trump. Yeah. So, uh, and as such, we can talk about trust in Theresa May versus the Tory party. Uh, we can talk about trust in uh, more people we know closer to us as opposed to far away. So it allows us a lot of flexibility to talk about these, these aspects of trust. But one aspect of this that's very important is that there's a reciprocal component. So that what happens is, is how much I trust you is reflected in how much you trust me. How much you behave trustworthy to me is a function of uh, to you is how much you reflect your trustworthiness towards me. So we gauge in these sort of matching kinds of it's not complete, but it's general trend. So that trust happens to be reciprocal to some extent. Okay, and that's a really important part. So once you start to violate your promise and so on, you you break into a cycle or on the downward spiral. Uh, you, kind downward of spiral. And I've talked about that in several of the blogs, and it is a real quality of trust that is is really essential to understanding how these dynamics work. And you can see it in the context of international, where you violate mm. your trust. Even the Brexit is based on that notion, my interpretation of that. When we remove ourselves uh, from this common market, we are breaking a promise, essentially. We're, we're, we're taking away, we're saying we're no longer going to be in yep. it. We're taking away a promise to be cooperative, at least. And that sort of, you can, what I argue is, is that that tends to be, begin a cycle of distrusting relations, which really has turned out, and, and, and to some extent, um, we, we still, uh, you know, nations which are bound to some extent, so it's not, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the end of this process. But these are cycles, and, and that's essential we have to be concerned about. Brilliant. So if you are watching and you want to ask any questions to Ken, uh, to Ken do comment them below and we'll, um, we'll ask them for you. I guess you, you mentioned Brexit there, so it, it might be worth just touching on that. Um, so back before Brexit, was it before the That's vote, right. you, you um, wrote an article about it was a matter of trust, so which side we trusted the most would win. Is that kind of the, the well, no, that, simplified view? No, actually that's not the way okay. I can tell you. Play it out, because I talk about essentially what I was saying to you, the, the common market. Our, our membership of the EU is essentially a common market. We've promised to cooperate, and we are now, well, what you want to call it, withdrawing that trust. And, yeah. You know, withdrawing that promise. And as such, it breaks this cooperative trusting relationship. And we should see a down cycle of cooperativeness between them and, and, and us. And you see it, really, and we have these points about us paying for it and, and about what, you know, this divorce description. In fact, the other model I used was divorce. That what happens is, is when this trust starts mm. breaking down, if you wish to use a commonsensical term, you violate it, then trust cycles downward. And all I said basically was that that's going to happen. It's going to take a long time for us to recover because trust does not recover that quickly. Um, and particularly if you wish to withdraw permanently from a relationship, it may, you know, who, who knows what the outcome will be. So I actually argued that. I, I said that we're going to account of this for some time to come. But I didn't say the, the decision will be on who you trusted the most, although that's possible. What I simply talked about is both sides in this uh, remain and leave. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, were, had been accused, at least, the allegations, of not being trustworthy, yeah. of not being accurate depictions of it. And so that's what I dealt with. And what I said was, is that what that does is may undermine the perceptions of these politicians as trustworthy individuals, because it's going to remove our trust to some extent in these politicians yeah. who have not only have conflicting claims, but we find out the information that are, they're based on may not be accurate. So that was one aspect of it that I was a bit concerned about, and still am. The other part of it was, is, is that since we've now trusted our leaders 
and wanted to leave or remain, uh, at least half of us are going to lose because it was very close at yeah. the time. I didn't know how close. I mean, I had read the polls. So I so said, whatever it is, one group of people, a big chunk of our of our, of our UK citizens, are going to be uh, somehow left in a band, left in distress, uh, because their trust in the leaders has not been fulfilled in some respects. Because you know, they, they, you know, they didn't they, get the result. They, they didn't get yeah. the result they wanted, and uh, who, they're going to be also frightened about their future. Because uh, if people touted, well, if we leave the EU, for example, then there'd be dire economic situations. Mm. Well, they would be also in fear because of the future. So at any rate, I, that was basically the, uh, the article that I, that I proposed. And I do think that the trust is an important dynamic through all of this, both in our politicians and the outcome of maintaining a democracy. So what I do go in this book is, is how important trust in the government is for a democratic society. So I think in general we suffer when we undermine trust, however this happens, within our political leaders. That, that's one of the underlying themes of it. So looking at the negotiation process then, do you think we're still in this downward cycle of the back and forth of trust that's breaking down between the two Absolutely. groups? Absolutely, and I think it's still going to unfold for a long time to come. So we're still sort we, of we still trust haven't in, in actually separated from the EU. Yeah. Because we're just really, that hasn't happened. We triggered the, uh, the you know, the, uh, I don't want to call it the action, whatever it was, oh, the article 50, to be yeah. precise. Um, but we still haven't separated. People talk as though, well, you know, it isn't as dire as it seems. Well, we have not separated. Mm. When we separate, maybe we'll see the full brunt of what it comes. Now, this is not to say I, I'm, I'm support or not support this Brexit. It, it's not. It's not. It's not necessarily a biased political observation. It's just pure it, trust. It's just, it's just the issue of dynamics of trust and what we know unfolds from this breakdown of relationships. So, looking at then. Um, our government in particular then and trust and you saying that um, when there's a breakdown you know trust is a fundamental value that we need to have in our government um, and in particular we've seen things in the news around the, the, the problems inside the cabinet um, what have you looked into anything in terms of that the trust inside the cabinet well we began an article on that and still working on it it's still in progress and, and yes I mean it is a bit of a problem when you find the politicians potentially, I say potentially, allegations, uh -huh. I want to be clear about this, because we, the, the thing about governments and, and the reason we can speculate so easily is it is secrecy. We have to protect <laughs> the, the privacy and the security of these politicians. So much of it is done in secrecy, and that invites speculation mm. about these kinds and of distrust. motivations and distrust. Yeah. So sadly enough, we may never know, and it invites these things. So people say, oh, yes, I can speculate. So if you see something going on, then you, uh, you, you really jump on the notion that there's a, you know, a covert aggression, you know, somebody's plotting for somebody else, and there's distrustful behaviors and interactions. And uh, it is quite easy to jump into those and to perceive those. And as I said to you earlier, what is important from a perspective, there is an issue of how trustworthy people are. I want to highlight that. Of course, we want to know what to But one of, one of the most important mechanisms is what you perceive. That's what social psychologists deal with. What do you think is going on? What do you perceive that's going on? If you see them getting into various behaviors, if you think they are, that that's having an impact on people's confidence in the government and what's going to transpire uh, in terms of their involvement in the democratic process, the confidence in the country, and all those, all those implications. And so... What's what's kind of been happening in the cabinet then? Because obviously they, there's been this air of distrust, but then they're all sort of. It seems that after the party conference, they were all, they all started to say, "Oh no, we 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 100% have, yeah. have her back" and things like that. Do you think that's 
a suspicious thing going on there, do you think? Well, the problem is, is that I think we're particularly alerted uh, to suspicious events. They're, un, uh, they're negative. Uh, they have negative implications. Uh, there's a general tendency in social psychology, as we know, to tend to negative events because of the potential consequences. So the trouble is, no matter what you try and cover at the end, when you've opened up this Pandora's box, mm. if you wish to use a metaphor, uh, then you tend to open up many speculations and people are concerned because um, that's a tendency people have. We tend to ignore... Well, there's a famous study uh, that I can convey to you anonymously. It wasn't mine in which we present uh, these faces in a crowd. And, and, and we have all these cases in which uh, all the faces are smiling, there's a frowning, frowning face, okay. or vice versa. Uh, it's really easy to pick out the frowning face. You immediately see it in the crowd. You're drawn something, to it. You're drawn to it. Yeah. And the idea of social psychologists is, as opposed to a smiling face and, and, and the frowning, or, any, or even neutral, I mean, there's, there's different versions of this. We're very attuned to negative events. And if you listen to the news, they're mostly about negative events mm. in the world. People want to know what's going to disrupt their lives and what's going to have a negative impact. And as such, the same thing happens in terms of politics. So once you get these negative events, they do permeate people's thoughts when they see them again, even if they say, oh, we, we really care about each other and uh, we're good mates, if you want to use the term. Uh, there are always those suspicions that permeate, uh, partly because we, because these things have been... Uh, we call primed or, or really highlighted and still come to people's minds when they see them. And so how good are we at trusting people or do we find it easier to, to lose trust or how good are we as, as, as a, you know, well, how, as sort of a modern society of, of trusting people and, and, and also spotting when someone's not being trustworthy. Well, you were talking, of course, we were talking about that. Uh, now, detecting deception is another dimension. And there's some researchers actually in the UK who deal with this. As I said, actually, to you, uh, we don't detect uh, lying very well. In fact, most people don't detect it better than chance. Uh, there's a famous, I don't know if you've seen the program on TV, Would I Lie to You? I think that's what it's called. Yes. I don't know what the rate is for people detecting lying in that show. I don't think it's particularly good. No one has ever kept, I should keep a record <laughs> of that. <laughs> you know, as, as you think, because people aren't particularly good at detecting lying. Now, these people perhaps become more trained, and there is some evidence that you can have some training um, that can allow you to really identify. But the, the normal person, uh, most people, don't do very well at detecting deception, which which is problematic from people's point of view. Um, now, the there is a chapter in my book which calls the trust the right amount. It was a blog that I produced, but it's also in chapter. The problem is, is that we can't tell you precisely um, how much you trust individuals, or really how much people should be trusting. The one thing that people probably won't know about this and the other line of work that I've been doing is that there seem to be negative effects of trusting too much. At one time, we dismissed this, but when I eventually went, most of my work actually has been, a lot of my work has been dedicated to this, we always think of trust as good. And in actuality of it, that, that what studies show, it's not always good. And okay. you can be too trusting insofar as you're very trusting on these scales. And children, and now we've really found in adults, who are too trusting, very high in trusting, show a variety of, of maladjustments. Uh, children show this very obviously, even in the playground. So we had girls, uh, this is in elementary school, we observed them. We had their trust in their peers. 
And the girls who were very low trusting were very aggressive, uh, not necessarily involved in affiliation, uh, seemed a lot of distress. But so were those girls who were high in trusting. Girls who were high in trusting uh, tended to show also a degree of indirect aggression in particular, um, not, not adequate affiliation, and also a degree of distress. So being very low and very high trusting presumably has a psychosocial consequences. And I'm just writing the paper and submitting it, which suggests indeed that it's similar for adults. And we have similar patterns. So uh, trust is not necessarily always good. And the, this is really belayed in a number of phrases about being too trusting. Lots of reasons we think about this, which we're not sure about, but we think underlies this. You can be betrayed if you trust too mm. much. Of course, you also deviate from the norm if you trust, you know, too much. You know, you're just... This is the easily e led kind of Easy thing. led, you know, you're gullible and naive, and, you know, that itself has a negative quality. Uh, we're not absolutely sure precisely what the mechanisms are involved, but the pattern does suggest that you can, you have to be very reasonably careful. In my book, in the chapter, and when people, when I raise this question, I said, well... We can't tell you if you trust too much or too little necessarily. Even these patterns are general, so that, you know, they're just statistical. So I can't tell the individual mm. whether they are. I, what I suggest to people is really it depends when you engage in a, uh, any sort of dyadic relationship with a person. You look at the history of their behaviors, uh, history of events, developing sort of reciprocal forms of trust, and develop it in that fashion rather than jumping in the deep end. You know, so, right. so people get uh, betrayed because they give their life savings to this poor person who just comes into their life. Well, develop a history of relationships, at least before, and develop them in terms of a more gradual kind of fashion, like the trusting. And those reciprocal patterns build up reciprocal between them and yourself to develop a trusting relationship. So it depends on the common social history, which is really part of my, my particular framework. So we learn trust over time, that we, we grow up learning by our mistakes of of trusting people who we shouldn't have trusted or trusting things that we shouldn't have trusted. Well, presumably we do. Yeah. Uh, however, that's actually not simply been demonstrated. Um, we do have some... There's only so a we few, could be born with a few Well, it's, it's really quite complicated. We don't have a lot of information. One of the few studies on the topic is mine. There's probably two other studies in the field that I know of. Uh, we don't know a little about exactly how this trust develops. Attachment theories would allow us, would, would suggest we would let us believe that we learn it really largely through our early child and infant yeah. uh, caregiver interaction. Um, there could be some elements of that, you know, we could be some of those qualities that we generally we develop these trusting orientations of the world. Uh, having said that, we know that now attachment quality is not equivalent to trust. You can have different trust as opposed to your attachment. So okay. they're not, not the same. And I've worked my, most of my life trying to show that these are separate constructs. But, however, I do think there is an element of early childhood in which you start to develop these generalized trusts. And that that's probably what carries people somewhat through many of these interactions. Um, and there are, you know, these early interactions. You still have various people in your life who do do not form these trusting relationships, reciprocal ones. And they do probably form a component of the developmental process. So, you, I think you said that we can, 
we can develop, we can become better at detecting lies? Did you say you can you can almost train yourself? Well, you can't because I've heard of things like micro is it micro the micro expressions? That's yes, it. Yeah. Yes, that's a term. Uh, that's from the leakage and from Ekman's approach. You can make people aware of those micro expressions. There's not. An, I mean, there's some some actual evidence of disfluencies and a few others that I imagine if you do prime people, you can, you can actually make them particularly attentive to that. Uh, it's not an easy task. These micro-expressions are, by definition, micro. Mm. So they're, very, they're, brief. Yeah, I mean, they're brief and they're milliseconds. So in actuality, it isn't easy to pick it up. In a normal uh, dialogue, you know, where you're just seeing somebody and they're giving you... You don't have that particular opportunity to have a replay of a video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you just have to go on, on, on what actually you've seen. So uh, the, the sad thing is, is that uh, it is reasonably difficult for normal people to do it. That that's that's one thing we find time and time again. But yes, you can be trained, and how useful that training is remains a bit to be to be seen. I see, I see. Okay. And so, um, students who are looking to come to Kiel, can they learn about the psychology trust? Can they learn more about it whilst at, whilst at Kiel? Well, they could. Unfortunately, I'm not teaching uh, anymore. I'm just a, a really uh, researcher for Keele. That's my role in this particular context. I will be giving talks here. Yep. Uh, the next book, the book that we have produced by Brett Lynch, and I, they have produced, we, I guess, them. It's a series. They call The Psychology of Everything. It's a bit like a, a psychology, theory of everything. Theory of it's, it's really yeah. an extension of that. Uh, um, and they have a variety of topics that are covered. It's, for, it's really a popular uh, book. Uh, the one that I'm producing now is a textbook. Uh, it would be, I've consigned to do it. Uh, it's going to review, it has all the scales that we developed. We developed some of the nine scales between my colleagues and I, mm-hmm. and different uh, targets and natures of trust. Uh, it's going to include those so people have a, a common source to, to use as, as, as measures. Uh, it's going to be an incredible textbook. So they may not see me here, but if they want to buy this textbook when, it, when they it's can available, find out more. they can begin the task of actually uh, investigating this phenomenon, which I really, in a sense, dedicated a lot of my career to. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Ken. We'll leave it there. Um, thank you for watching. Thank you for joining us. Um, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you again. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you.